So, questions that God asks. That's kind of an unusual series, isn't it? It's one that I have really enjoyed. Uh, For those of you who might be brand new to this, Pastor Brent uh, began this series two weeks ago, and he kicked it off by looking at the question, uh, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Were any of you here for that one? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Talk about an intimidating question, right? I mean, how do you answer that? I don't know. I was making a sandwich. I don't know, right? And then last week, uh, we pondered the question that God asked of Jacob, what is your name? Now, I don't know about you, but the thought of God asking me a question is absolutely frightening. I mean, I don't typically think of God asking me or anyone else questions. I always have in mind that we as people, we're the ones who are asking the questions of God. You know, uh, questions like some of these questions that some kids have asked. God, if you saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone, how come you never made yourself a wife? Maybe God knew something that that the rest of us didn't know. Did Jesus have to get potty trained? That's a fair question, right? How about this? Is Jesus a zombie? You know, that whole resurrection thing to a kid can be a little confusing, right? If Jesus doesn't have a sister, why do I need to have one? And for those of you who have sisters, you can probably relate to that, right? Or how about this one? God, how can you love everybody all the time? There are four people in my family, and I can never do it. I love those questions. Well, the reality is that Scripture is full of dozens of questions, dozens of examples where God asks questions of people. And the question that we'll look at tonight is the question of, where are you? My senior year of high school, I was uh, the quarterback And uh, we were playing Troy High School. I'm from Southern California, Anaheim to be example, to be specific. And I went to Savannah High School. And uh, that year, my senior year, we we were absolutely awful. In fact, we didn't win a single game the whole season. And this game, we were playing Troy High School, who at that time, they were a real football powerhouse. So we're playing Troy, and uh, on this one particular play, I'm supposed to uh, have the ball hike to me, and I'm going to drop back, and I'm going to throw it to my running back, who's just going to go out in the flat about 10 yards. So everything is going good so far once I get the ball, but as I drop back and I'm going like this, I'm blindsided by a blitzing linebacker. Didn't even see the dude coming. When I came to five minutes later, (laughs) suffering a concussion, I can can still remember people looking over me and they're going, Abbott, Abbott, where are you? Another time, I was a, uh, a paratrooper in the army for a short time. And on this one particular jump, I was having a great jump. Always, it's always a great jump when your parachute opens. And thankfully, my chute opened. And I was having a great jump, but my landing was a little bit different. 
because on that day, that jump, it was a little bit windy. And uh, when the wind happens, it, it, it can cause you to kind of swing under your parachute. And that's not a good thing. And so I'm swinging back and forth and I'm slowly descending and I'm about to land on the ground and I am up, I'm up like this and I land on the downward swing. I landed so hard that it knocked the lens out of one side of my glasses. And on top of that, the wind uh, was still blowing and it inflated my parachute. So now I'm being dragged on the ground. This, doesn't this sound like a great time? So I'm dragged on the ground. I can't see. Thankfully, some fellow uh, paratroopers were nearby. They jumped on my chute. They unhooked my harness and they could see the you know, the disoriented look in my on my face. And again, they asked the question, Abbott, where are you? We've heard this question in Christian circles, haven't we? Where are you in your walk with God, right? You've heard that. Or perhaps you've heard it as you talk with your financial planner. Where are you at with your finances? So this question of where are you, we're all kind of familiar with it, aren't we? Well, tonight, I want us to focus our attention on a very powerful passage of scripture. Genesis chapter three. I'm gonna read it. It'll be up here on the big screens. Now the serpent was the shrewdest of all the creatures the Lord God had made. Really, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat any of the fruit in the garden? Of course we may eat it, the woman told him. It's only the fruit from the tree at the center of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God says we must not eat it or even touch it or we will die. You won't die, the serpent hissed. God knows that your eyes will be open when you eat it. You will become just like God. Knowing everything, both good and evil, well, the woman was convinced. The fruit looked so fresh and delicious and it would make her so wise. So she ate some of the fruit. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Then he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they strung fig leaves together around their hips to cover themselves. Toward evening, they heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid themselves among the trees. And now God asks what I think is the most haunting question in all of scripture. The Lord God called out to Adam, where are you? Where are you? This is the first question that God asks in, in scripture. And he's asking it of the only man alive who is now hiding behind some trees. In chapters one and two, it's all very descriptive of how God created the heavens and the earth. And it's toward the end of chapter two that God creates woman. And then chapter three is where the first conflict happens in this cosmic drama that you and I are a part of. On the surface, where are you? 
Seems like a humorous question, doesn't it? I mean, after all, this is God, right? Of course he knows where Adam is. Nobody can hide from God. The thing about God's question was that it wasn't in regard to Adam's physical location. He wasn't physically lost. Adam was spiritually lost. I mean, we've all been physically lost, right? All of us can recount a time that we were separated from others. We were separated from safety. The first time that I can remember, when I was about six or seven years old, my mom, my brother, who's a year younger than I am, and myself, we were back in Caribou, Maine. Caribou is where my mom is from, and we were back there visiting family. And this one particular day, we decided to go to the local Woolworths department store. Anybody remember Woolworths, right? That's going back a ways. Well, we decided to go over there, and um, while we were there, my brother and I got separated somehow from my mom. Well, me being the big older brother, I'm thinking I got everything in control until my younger brother, he could see that I absolutely had no clue how to find our mom, and he did the only thing that he knew would get immediate results, and that was to begin screaming and wailing as loud as possible, which he did with quite success. And of course, his screaming and my confusion started me to cry. We were both incredibly scared, confused, and the only thing that we wanted was our mom. We were lost. But in this situation with Adam, he wasn't physically lost. God asked Adam the question to check on his spiritual location. Where are you, Adam? It's almost as if you can hear the pain in God's voice. In my mind, what I picture, I picture God as the loving father with his arms open wide asking, where are you? Why have you strayed? I've given you a wife, everything that you would need. Why would you stray, Adam? Where are you? You get a feeling in hearing that there's almost a longing for what used to be. And it's true. Because the closeness that once existed in their relationship has now been broken. And some of you have asked the very same question, haven't you? You've asked it of your spouse. You've come to a place in your marriage where you feel, where you feel like he or she isn't the same person that you married. There's a distance now that has replaced the connection that you once had, and you're standing there asking the question, where are you? You've asked it of your own children, your own flesh and blood that you were once so close to. They have now left your house, refused your authority, and now you're the one standing at the front door with arms open wide asking, where are you? There's a few things that we can learn from this passage. The first one that you can write in your outline 
is that Satan is deceptive. Satan is deceptive. I know that this is obvious, and we all know this, but sometimes we forget, and this is an important thing to remember. Because along with being known as the slanderer, the accuser, the father of lies, one of Satan's other names is the deceiver. He has an arsenal of tools that he uses against you and I. And one of his greatest tools is deception, fooling us into believing something that is not true. Paul He warns the church in Corinth about this. He says, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. We have all experienced things in our lives that almost seemed heaven sent, only to discover that it was anything but. Satan desires to deceive us on everything in our lives, including the very word of God. Remember, God told Adam and Eve, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Satan turned God's word around and said to Eve, did God really say? Satan in his boldness, even tried to use this tactic on Jesus himself when he tempted Jesus in the desert. His purpose for doing all of this is to plant seeds of doubt, of confusion, of deception. And in the Genesis account, he is causing Eve to second guess herself as to what exactly did she hear God say? And we can all relate to this, right? We can all relate to falling prey to deception. Some of you have fallen prey to get-rich-quick schemes. And all of us at one time or another have believed something that simply was not true. And ever since Genesis, Satan has been trying to undermine God's word which is why you and I need to know this book so that we can recognize deception and falsehood as it relates to God's word. Here's what we need to remember, gang. Satan knows this book inside and out, forward and backwards. We should know it also. All right, the second thing to write down and remember is that Satan is the tempter. Satan is the tempter. Temptation is the other tool that we see Satan using here. 1 John 2.16, it says this, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but it comes from where? From the world. Eve saw the forbidden fruit. She saw that it would be good for her body. Now, we don't know what kind of fruit it was. It probably wasn't an apple. But it must have been something that was very physically appealing to her. She saw it was pleasing to her eyes. 
She just had to have it. And finally, she gave in to the pride of life. She was filled with the desire to become wise. And temptation seems to be a part of all of our lives, right? It's, it's everywhere. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You can't get away from it. And I know we could give a whole message on just how to navigate temptation, but I'm not going to do that tonight. We'll do that another time. The next lesson that we can learn from this is that we hide from our mistakes. We hide from our mistakes. After Adam and Eve's eyes were open, they were aware of innocence lost and were overcome with embarrassment and shame. Author and speaker, Dr. Brene Brown, she spent a good part of her career uh, tackling this topic of shame because it's so powerful. And she says this, she says that shame erodes our courage and fuels disengagement. And we see that with Adam and Eve, don't we? The normalcy of their daily communion with God has now been replaced with disengagement. They're running. They're hiding. And the last thing that they want to do is talk to God or be anywhere near his presence. Intimacy with God had been lost. Adam and Eve knew that they had done something wrong. And as they became aware of their sin, the first thing that they did was to hide. To hide their bodies with fig leaves and then to hide their souls from their creator. The courage and confidence that they once had in their relationship with God has now been replaced with fear and embarrassment. And they find themselves hiding in the trees. This is another thing that we can all relate to, isn't it? We've all been in their shoes, wanting to hide from some stupid thing that we've done. The truth is that it's, it's hard to own up when you mess up. I mean, how many times have you done something that you didn't want anybody else to know? I can tell you I have many times. Adam and Eve knew they had messed up and they couldn't run far enough away from God. In here, I've, I've mentioned before that my favorite author is uh, Henry Nouwen. And he says this, he says, the farther I run away from the place where God dwells, the less I am able to hear the voice that calls me the beloved. And the less I hear that voice, the more entangled I become in the manipulations and power games of the world. We've all been eyewitnesses to this, haven't we? We've all seen people caught up in situations that they shouldn't have been in. We've seen people caught up in affairs where they keep trying to cover their tracks, keep lying about where they were and who they were with. They become masters at manipulating people 
and situations. But what happens nine times out of 10? We all know this. It catches up with them, right? It catches up and then what's left behind? Nothing but carnage, brokenness, and hurt people. We see it in business and government where people get so caught up in corruption and the pursuit of both money and power that they can no longer discern the difference between right and wrong. They become entangled in the manipulations and power games of the world and they can no longer hear the voice of God. But here's the good news in all of this. We got to end on a high note, right? I love this. God is always in pursuit of the lost. Write that down. God is always in pursuit of the lost. To me, one of the most interesting aspects of this Genesis passage is that God was out walking. I don't usually think of God walking, but that's what it says. He was out walking. He was out walking, looking for his creation. Where are you is a question asked by someone who is pursuing. And it provides a beautiful illustration for us because no matter where you're at in life, no matter what you've done, God is looking for you. God is pursuing you. His pursuit of you began before you were even born. We read in Psalm 139, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to pass. And Paul writes to the church of Ephesus that God pursues you because he has a purpose for you. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in us for us in advance for us to do. Now, many people, when they hear this, they would say, wait, wait a second. You have no idea the things that I've done. You have no idea how I've hurt people. You have no idea. How could God be pursuing me? It's because God is in the business of redeeming people, redeeming lost people. Another favorite author of mine, Dr. Dan Allender. He says this, we're in the presence of a good story when the flaw that shatters shalom is also the doorway to redemption. Whether it be our own flaw or the sins of others, God uses the raw material of sin to create the edifice of his redeemed glory. The point cannot be overemphasized. Your plight is also your redemption. The Bible assumes that its stories is also our story. We are Abraham. We are Isaac. We are Jacob. Their stories are a paradigm of our own. 
Each of us is called, redeemed, and exiled again and again. God's greatest desire is to restore that which has been lost. And the story of God is a story where God is constantly pursuing people. I love the story of Franklin Graham, son of Billy. In his teenage years and early 20s, some of you probably know this, he was very rebellious, not only toward his father, but also toward God. And Franklin says, I believed in God. I just didn't want Jesus running my life. I wanted to run my own life, but I was miserable. He said that he realized for the first time that sin had control over his life. He wasn't in charge. Sin was. And there was absolutely nothing he could do to overcome it. And then suddenly, he had an overpowering conviction that he needed to get his life right with God. He said, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. My years of running and rebellion had ended. It was finished. Franklin felt the pursuit of God. See, God pursues people no matter how far they are from him. From the very beginning of this book until the very end, it's a love story with God as the pursuer. When Moses was running, he ran right into a burning bush. When Jonah was running, he ran right into the mouth of a fish. If a sheep is lost, Jesus tells us, the shepherd will leave the 99 behind to go in pursuit of the one that is lost. When the prodigal son decides to come home to his daddy who had been scanning the horizon for days on end. And when his daddy sees his son, he runs out to him in pursuit and he wraps his arms around him and kisses him. And he says, this son of mine was once lost, but is now found. Jesus tells us that his purpose for coming to earth was to seek and save who? the lost. He also tells us in the book of John, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Again, in John, he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And then finally, God's word says that we love because why? He first loved us. I hope you're getting the picture here. God pursues you because he loves you. So let me ask you a question. Where are you? Like Pastor Brent said two weeks ago, God asked the question because Adam and Eve were pushing down truths and concepts that were once very real in their lives. Are you doing that? Are there things in your life that you're ignoring? Things of God that you're ignoring? Where are you is a question that requires us to examine ourselves. And it's intensely personal, isn't it? 
because only you know where you're at in your relationship with God. We can put on our happy church faces as much as we want. We can project to others that we have our stuff together, but only you really know. Rabbi Mark Gelman, he said, God did not need to ask Adam where he was. It was Adam who needed to be asked. And God does not need to ask each one of us. It is we who need to be asked. The high holy days are the time when we are asked by God together and alone to admit for good and ill where we are, to render a spiritual accounting, not of our careers, but our compassion, not of our wealth, but of our wisdom, not of our gains, but of our gifts, not of our physical fitness, but of the fitness of our souls. So where are you? Although Adam and Eve were literally hiding behind trees, what are you hiding behind? Is it work? Power? Money? Busyness? Kids? Some of those are good things, right? They're good until they get in the way of our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. Or maybe you're here tonight and you're hiding because of regret or shame, anger, embarrassment. And you're at a place where you need to be reminded that you are loved, that you are a child of God. 